welcome to another episode of From Our City Wire Correspondent. Uh, this is episode number three. My name's Richard Lander, uh, and I've been at City Wire for longer than I care to remember, but still enjoying it. Uh, joining me today, uh, also based in London, is Chris Slowly, our editor of our City Wire Selector channel. And joining me from Munich is Serge Debrabon, who is the editor for Germany and Austria. Uh, welcome to you both. Hi, hi. The big news this week in Munich is is that Oktoberfest has been completely cancelled. Uh, yes, so what... uh, that was a bit of a blow, I think, for many. It's a bit of a symbolic event. It's also obviously um, good for tourism in Munich. It's one of the biggest events of its kind around the world. I think there's six million visitors every year. The blow on the economy in Munich is estimated to be 1 billion euros. It's not good for, for the atmosphere here, I think. It disappointed a lot of people, but it might yeah. be just what is being, what is needed. Yeah, I've seen the pictures. I mean, it does look, you know, it looks like a lot of fun, I have to say, but also looks like everyone is crowded together in these vast beer tents and, and you know, one can see why it's been cancelled. Has, has there been a lot of pushback in in the media or in court of public opinion about this? No, not really. I think people are understanding again. Um, I mean, um, if you talk to waitresses at uh, Oktoberfest, even without coronavirus, they usually end up at some point with a cold or something. Um, it's just a really uh, an environment that is very um, bad for your health. <laughs> so it's certainly a good idea to not. Right. Yeah. But a, but a major blow to the local economy. I mean, you know, I guess it bridges the gap between the, the summer tourists and the and the skiers, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's bad for hotels. It's bad for. It's also they're partly the big tents. They're owned by these big brewery company, companies, but there are also a lot of like small shops and so on who sell sweets, who sell little items like balloons or something, they will all miss this revenue this year. Yeah, yeah, I think that's one thing we tend to forget that when big events go, there's a lot of the, the, a lot of the long tail of, of, of employees and even tent makers are out of work. Uh, but the good news this week is that some shops have reopened in Bavaria and Germany generally. What, what, what was the first place that you went into that had been closed uh, during the lockdown? Um, I mean, the supermarkets have been open all the time, just so that people can do their shopping. What is uh, what was open were like small shops. Um, I actually haven't taken advantage of it, but um, let's say the um, you know just uh, the small like clothing store or something they were allowed to open on Monday. Um, yeah, I, to be honest, I'm not sure to which extent people have taken advantage of it. Yeah, but it's a, it's the first step. Uh, Chris, you and I are in London, where uh, nothing is open basically except food shops. Uh, how are you coping? I know you've got a small child. <laughs> yeah, I've sort of adjusted. I think I've become slightly institutionalised. I was I looked it up yesterday, and I've been working from home for 34 days now, if you're taking out the weekends. And it seems the the only worry is all the days blur into one. I'm not sure if other people are experiencing this, where the weekend is like is like a hiatus rather than a break i know that's a sort of semantic point but it does seem like we're constantly waiting for something to happen and i think nobody was surprised when the lockdown was extended here 
because I'm in the camp at least that I'd like this to be fully dealt with before right. we go back to any right. sort of normal life. They've talked about a traffic light system of having a, a delay of some elements of the economy able to go back. Um, if the Financial Times is to be believed, the, there's big dispute in the cabinet about half of them wanting to go back for the sake of the economy and half wanting to not because of the sake of the health. So there does seem to be a bit of division. But one thing that I've noticed is everyone I speak to when I do venture out safe distance for a small amount of time it may just be the area that I live in. Everybody seems to be abiding by it, at least accepting it. And there is a level of sort of compliance that perhaps hasn't happened in other regions. I've got uh, my wife's family. There's some in Italy who are I think they're in the sixth or seventh week of this now. And that's when it really starts to bite and get hard. And I think mm. we in London will come possibly come to that we'll have a big psychological challenge perhaps in two weeks time where we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel there hasn't been an exit strategy that's been properly um in any way publicized and that could be a real crunch point but for the time being at least we can we can do what we need to do we can talk to people talking like this has been exceptionally helpful i feel like i talked to my team more than i ever did even though i used to just sit in the middle of them on a desk so it's yeah there's there's pros and cons to it i think Good. And any you picking up any tips from your selectors about how they're how they're doing, how they're keeping sane? Well, it's it's a very mixed bag because we do cover the pan-European market. So we speak to example the like I mentioned there, we've got a lot of Italian uh, selectors. We speak to the Italian audience. They we spoke to them at the end of February about this, and they were sort of not getting to grips with it, but they were more established. And then you'd have Serge would know better than I did. You've got Germany, Switzerland, Austria places like that where they seem to be coming out the other side and where we do even speak even more i spoke to our asia editor and singapore had been sort of i don't know they they seem to be handling it better and i know they've had a spike recently but it is it's hard to get a homogenous view it's such mm. an individual situation and so many governments are dealing with it in such a different way right right okay uh Let's move on and, and sort of get on to the bread and butter of, of what City Wales is about, which is about investments. Uh, and I know, Chris, you've been looking at uh, which fund managers have cash piles to spend. Uh, some do, some don't, maybe, and, and what they're doing with it. So maybe give us a bit of insight on that. Yeah, of course. So my colleague, Margarita Kirikosian, is doing a big project at the moment where she's approached a number of the largest funds to see what their cash holdings were at the end of January and the cash holdings are now in their latest reports. We're still waiting for a lot of that information to come through, but anecdotally, there is a real mixed bag. There's a lot of people who've made the argument to us that you needed to be fully invested throughout this to get the most of it. You needed to go to a situation where you could, you would have losses, but you would also be in good positions that you'd hopefully counter them. And then on the flip side, I've spoken to emerging market debt managers who've had 30% cash and have decided that this is not a market where you want to be trapped in something. And I think the, I mean, we're talking about cash, but the issue is liquidity. It's whether you're in an area that if the worst did happen, you could get out of. And it seems like a very binary thing at the moment. Some people are saying we can go and get liquid assets or we just hold it as pure liquidity at the moment and don't do anything. It's, when it comes out, and like I said, we're working on this at the moment, I think it's going to prove quite a divisive picture of what the largest funds are actually doing. Mm. Right. Well, we'll look forward to that coming out soon. Uh, going back to you, Serge, uh, one of the things you mentioned to me when we talked recently was about gold. Uh, now, and that's, you know, 
commodities. Almost 9,000 tons of gold is in the hands of German private investors. Is this a traditional thing here? Is there you know, a penchant for gold amongst Germans? Is this a, is this a consequence of history and uh, massive inflation in, in their people's grandparents' time? Yeah, that's what people, that's how they explain it. Uh, it's certainly traditionally been like that, that Germans uh, own gold. Uh, there's then the discussion about, do you own an ETF? Do you have like coins? Um, where do you hold the coins? Uh, I mean, basically it's a measure of safety. You can explain it certainly also with, uh, yeah, as you say, with this idea that there was this hyperinflation in the 1920s, which was very destructive, um, and it's turned. It turns out to be to be a good investment at the moment. Yeah, it's risen um, quite substantially in recent months. Uh, I mean, talking to your the intermediaries, the wealth managers, the advisors you talk to, are they, are they what, what are they saying about what their clients are doing? I mean, again, uh, I think a lot of them do um, recommend or uh, hold some gold for their clients. Usually, if you look at uh, multi-asset funds in Germany, uh, the, which is kind of a very popular um, uh, fund class in Germany, they usually own a certain proportion of gold. And sometimes it's more, I think it's more seen as a diversifier than sort of, um, there's obviously also the more extreme crowd that thinks that the world will end and you know you should have gold bars in your in your um, in your basement but i think uh, for the most part is seen as a diversifier really okay and and the um, the, the advisors and the intermediaries uh, you were telling me that uh, you know they're working from home they don't get to see their clients uh, and it, that's interesting uh, is is face-to-face -face a big part of the relationship over there? I think so, yeah. I mean, uh, we try to, um, well, we in fact organized a story about home office and how different um, wealth managers uh, set up home office. Um, um, and it was extremely difficult to find enough uh, interview partners who were willing to talk about their experience. Um, when being asked, they usually said um, that, um, they had um, their good experiences, they were well organized, um, um, but some, I think, uh, some feared maybe a reputational damage from talking up home office too much. That's me interpreting it, nobody said it that way, but we did have quite a bit of problems to find enough interview partners for the story. Right, because we've been talking to other people and they say, you know, actually, and maybe this is a function of being in, in, in busier locations like New, New York and London, that they're actually getting a lot more work done. They don't have to travel half an hour on terrible roads and crowded subways to see people. So they're actually finding it more efficient. Chris, I don't know if you've had any. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think um, there is a real uh, feeling among the people that we speak to that there's a real, I mean, it's a, again, it's a, it's a, a gift and a curse that you you wake up and you can start you can just get straight into it and i spoke to a lot of people my team spoke to a few people across france and italy and um, spain about how they're adjusting to this and one of them said they're now working 12 hour days 14 hour days just because they can dip in and out they were saying they weren't saying it like it was a bad thing they were saying that they don't have to travel into offices they don't have to um 
go across the whole of Paris on the metro, take an hour out of their day to have a 30 minute meeting with someone and come all the way back and lose that time. But then there is that also, I suppose, the gas expands to fill the container. They then put in more meetings into those gaps. So it depends on people who, depends on the work ethic of the person. But we're finding that there is a big, I'm going to keep sounding like I'm sitting on the fence. There's people who are finding that they're doing more and more work in this time. And there's people who are working longer hours, but doing less. So it is, it comes down to a mixture of efficiencies. But I think on Serge's point about people not wanting to, show that they're working from home. I do think there's a sort of weird camaraderie in the people that I speak to who are all sort of like, oh, well, you know, you, you make do. We have to put up with this sort of temporary arrangement. Um, and I'm just interested to see how long that lasts for. I mean, I've had calls where my son's burst in in the background and shouted. And I mean, I think that was quite cute and funny for the first yeah. week. But if we're still doing this in 12 weeks time and we're having quite a serious conversation, people's patience might have worn slightly thin by then. Right. Just to go back to investment, and, and so is another thing you mentioned was uh, volatility funds blowing up there. Is this a big part of the German investment landscape, these funds? Yes, I mean, we reported on a temporary closure of an Senegal fund, and um, some uh, other website also talked about a Greif fund, a volatility fund that had to completely close. Um, it's a small part of the market is my feeling. There are not many, but obviously they had to deal with extreme volatility and apparently um, some of them weren't really set up for this. These are usually short volatility funds um, I'm talking about. Um, yeah, uh, but there were some, definitely some problems there. Right. I think we... Sorry, Sorry to jump in. We, we, we have seen the same sort of thing. Serge and I um, coordinated on that Senegal piece because that fund was, during the first three weeks of March, that was the best performing fund in the citywide database. It was the only one with over, a, I should qualify that, it was the only fund with over a billion dollars in assets that had produced a positive return over that period. But it came at the, uh, the cost that it had to temporarily close. Um, and we ran a piece this morning from Fitch Ratings that did some analysis with ESMA, the European um, Securities and Markets Association or Authority that said that between 40, and bil 40 billion and 100 billion euros is locked up in gated funds now because they've gone through these volatility roller coasters. And I think volatility funds that we've seen, I mean, we've seen some notes from Senegal, we've seen them from Amundi, we've seen them from quite a few. They're having either a weird situation where they're having the best time of their lives and the worst time of their lives. The VIX jumped to 82. It then came down to about 43. But I remember at the start of the year, it was at 12. So if you're, even if you are set up to deal with that, that the speed of the movement mm. is, is really hard for them to capture. So I think, I mean, it's easy to say that volatility is always volatile, but it is a hard thing to, to capture correctly. And we will see this play out for a long time, I think. Right. And, and these funds presumably sold to end investors as, as what is in the same way that long short funds or absolute returns turn funds were. Yeah, the, the ones we would cover would be in an alternative use as wrapper. So they would be largely liquid vehicles, but filled with derivatives and swaps. And they would be working on uh, trying to get the difference between the realized and the implied volatility and, and arbitraging that opportunity. Um, that said, they are very complex vehicles. I don't think they are primarily aimed at retail investors, and I don't mm. think they would want to be aimed at retail investors. So they are trying to aim at the sophisticated end of the market. But even the sophisticated investors are finding this tough. Right. So maybe another one for that box marked liquid until they're not liquid. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> Good. Okay, uh, let's move on a little and, and, and look forward, and I'll stick with you, Chris. Uh, you've been looking at people who had money invested in airlines, which have been pretty awful investments, I would imagine, over the last few months. Uh, what are they going to do? Are they sticking or are they dumping or are they dumping well, down? I think the, the silence on this speaks volumes because I've approached several firms to see what they're doing and we get the usual thing if we don't talk about single stock positions and now that's been amped up to we don't talk about sector positions. So a lot of people are reluctant to say what they're actually going to do. The, the bizarre scenario, I spoke to somebody off the record this morning, and they said the bizarre scenario is the oil price crash. Airlines traditionally would have been one of the main beneficiaries of that because they're a huge user of oil they're a huge user of res that resource except but, if they bought, bought all their oil in january it's well of course yeah if it's all done on futures then they're yeah. trapped into contracts that would actually cripple them even further but the few the, the one or two people who i have spoken to about this are more of the deep value players who are thinking that there will be some sort of long-term situation i spoke to one guy who said um he can see huge consolidation in that market which will ultimately end with one or two key players and you've just got to now buy into those that are likely to weather it probably get government support some sort of government subsidy i spoke to um peter meany at first state who's a very um long-running infrastructure manager and also very dependent on airlines he's based in sydney but he invests globally so he flies everywhere so it's something that's close to him i think it's a personal interest but he is watching very closely to see how much government aid they're given but he doesn't even with climate change pressures they're not going to let the airline industry go out of business because it's it's still fundamentally it's, important to get people around and get stuff around it's too important and the other thing you've been looking at is is real assets and private assets i think you had a piece this morning saying looking at uh you know is this the time now for private markets which have traditionally been beyond the uh you know the beyond the reach of many wholesale investors yeah, absolutely. So we did a piece this morning when it happened that two um, big um, investors, so Nuveen in America and Newberger Berman also in the US, came out with notes both saying this could be a, an excellent time to look at your alternative or private market allocations. And even with the, the questions of liquidity and illiquidity hanging over that, they say that the both the upside and the downside benefits of being in these areas, they tend to be largely uncorrelated to the rest of the market if you are invested they tend to lock down your capital as well which i mean can be again a plus or a minus and it is more about thinking long term and i think the the point of the piece was to look at how you're diversifying your portfolio not just to weather the short term but to also make sure you're in a good position for the five next five seven ten years right okay cool and so, so i'm going to come back to you i'm going to talk about the future in a different sense because as you mentioned at the beginning uh the shops are beginning to open and, and Germany is probably leading the way in terms of you know there's, there's going to be more reopenings in May museums in Berlin religious ceremonies in Berlin hairdressers and goodness knows maybe I should come to Germany and, 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 and get one of those I need it need one uh, <laughs> you look very you know you don't you look you look great uh, so I think very... I'm winning on that front I can, yeah. my hair can actually stand up on its end now. <laughs> okay thank goodness this is a podcast uh, <laughs> But Serge, you know, there's, is the general opinion this is happening at the right pace or too fast or too slow? I mean, one of the things about... 
there's a very open debate is my feeling i mean we also have a kid and my wife works uh, we wish that the kindergartens were um or nursery schools i think you say uh the nursery schools were open um on the other hand there's obviously the question of um how, when do you move too quickly um angela merkel is certainly more on the conservative front she's been criticized for like a statement she made where she talked about orgies of discussions about further easing, um, which was seen as quite inappropriate uh, because obviously there are also a lot of people who suffer from these lockdowns. Um, yeah, I think it's a very open discussion in the end um, and, uh, and something that has many moving parts and will can also be quickly taken back if it turns out that the numbers of new infections spike again, like they did in uh, Singapore or something. So, yeah, that's, that's a bit the full picture. Yeah. Can I search? Have you seen any backlash from people? I mean, watching the news here, we see the US, uh, there's a lot of anti lockdown protests. Has any sort of sentiment like that reached Germany? No, but the it's called lockdown and it's not really lockdown. Um, I don't know exactly the arrangements in um, England, but um, you can go out, you can go to a supermarket. Um, if you go to the ESA like I like to do on a, on a weekend, there, it's full of like um, people who run, who have walks, who uh, are out there with their kids. Um, uh, and the police is there, but they usually don't interfere. There's a bit of a, um, the understanding is that this is the best way this is done is in a, a voluntary way. Um, so really, so basically the authorities try to not interfere too much. So um, you can go to, you can go to work if you want to, you know, like, um, for example, with these wealth managers, there are enough people who still go to work if you are like in a senior position you might actually be the guy who still sits uh in the office so it's like really a very mixed picture and i i personally don't find it too oppressing i think the where it really hurts is when you have a small business and you don't have the revenues and so mm. on okay uh, i think on that point we're gonna wrap up today so thank you chris thank you serge uh let's keep going through this and you know we can all meet up again in real time uh face to face very soon thank you for listening uh we'll be back again with another episode of from our city our correspondent next week and it's goodbye from me mm -hmm.